Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Ben Chase, reporter for the Huron Plainsman in Huron, South Dakota. We learned of Ben when he wrote to us to say how much he was enjoying the podcast. He and I have a common baseball bond. And Ben said that if we'd ever like to talk about small town newspaper reporting, he'd love to come on. Today, we take him up on that. Hi, Ben. Hi. You've been with the Plainsman for a year and a half. And the first thing I want to know is, can you take us through the path that led to you becoming a newspaper reporter? Well, I, it's kind of a roundabout way that I got there. I was a marketing major in college, and my senior year was when 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden, the only thing allowed, that was really out there for a marketing major was sales jobs that really, for my personal morality, didn't cross well. Um, I didn't like the way that the talk was right in the interview as to what they wanted me to do. And so it made me kind of look outside of things, which led me to youth ministry. And from there, I went into social work, and that's where I was for well over a decade. And while I was doing social work, I started doing baseball writing part-time on the side. And just originally for free, then I kind of got some gigs doing editing on baseball websites. And just had always been something I, I, I always enjoyed writing and was on, I mean, way back to ESPN boards when they had message boards way back in the day, I was frequent on there and would write very long detailed posts on there and then talk through the arguments with people on there. Um, and so that was always something I was interested in, but trying to make that a go and make that a full-time gig was tough. Well, then that opportunity came for me and it was about the time that we had some foster children that we were looking to adopt and it worked out perfect that I could stay home, do that job from home, and also be around for those kids as we transition them into our home full time. So it was really just a perfect transition for me. But as they got into school, it was time for me to start finding a job outside the house again and get going into that. And so this job came up as a, a reporter that had been with the Plainsman for over 40 years retired. And so I stepped into his role. Now, that must be interesting that they see you as baseball writing experience, but this is a job that's very um, all-encompassing from what, oh, yeah. I, what I can tell. What was the, I guess, what was the interview process like convincing them that you were the right person to handle something like this? Well, really, the funny part is the person who interviewed me, he's known of me for a long, long time. And... Uh, Basically, he asked about a couple of Facebook posts that I had put out. He had read a Facebook post that I had where I took a music, for a while I was taking old 80s rock hair band songs and turning them into sermons. And he read one of those and he said, if you can spin something like that, you can spin a good story. And he would read through a couple of my other things that I had written. And he said, you know, these are very well written. I we can work with this. And so that's where we went. That's awesome. All right. So what about journalism appeals to you? I guess it goes really back to, you know, I really like to take the time to research something and to figure out what's 
all encompassing on an issue and then go and educate others on it. That's just something to me that I've really always enjoyed. Even going back into the social work, when I was working with folks who were mentally ill and they were struggling with, I really don't want to take this medication. I would sit down in their, their appointment with their psychiatrist and I would kind of work as the interpreter and talk to them about, you know, so what exactly is this going to do? What are all the side effects? What's, what's the worst possible outcome? What's the best possible outcome? Let's go through all this and give them the reality of it from both sides and then let them make a very well-educated decision rather than take the extremes and make the decisions on the extremes. And so that's what I liked. I liked that end of working in social work and I'm finding that that's kind of where I end up as, and especially since starting, I really started, I had a, just a chance to barely get my feet wet and then COVID-19 hit. So I've really basically had my entire life as a journalist be COVID-19 focused. Wow. All right, so educate us on Huron. And I think that this is interesting because what you just talked about, I think a journalist is going to have to speak a certain language to the people of your city uh, based on what I've read the demographics and the political leanings to be. Can you just educate us on that? So Huron is, I mean, it's a town of 13, 13 and a half thousand people. Um, if you would look at the political roles, it's actually almost perfectly split Republican and Democrat. Where it votes, however, is almost always to conservative. Now it may vote a Democrat, but it's a conservative Democrat. Um, topics, social topics, always conservative. Um, if you look at the racial demographics, it's about two thirds white. However, you go into the schools and it's very, very different it's at least half minority at this point. And a lot of that is we've had a significant amount of immigrants recently from, um, from Burma, the Karen immigrants. And uh, we've had a lot from Latin America that have come uh, with the, we have a Jack Lynx uh, processing plant that is just outside of town. And then a Turkey processing plant that's just outside of town. And those two employers bringing a lot of, of immigrant workers but they come in in order to work and then live here in Huron. And they have a lot of young children. So our school system is very diverse. Our overall population within the town, not so much right now. And so, I mean, it's interesting to try and walk those two lines as you write for the paper as well. The Plainsman is 135 years old. It used to be a family owned newspaper. Now it's owned by a chain, News Media Corporation. What are the goals of the newspaper? The main thing you want to do, or what we want to do, is we want to make sure everyone in the community is informed of major things going on. Um, elections, if we have major things that are going on with a road construction going on in town, with a, you know, anything like that, you know, i probably talk about it a little bit more here later, but I just, I got to do a big story about the dump. Because they're doing a spring cleaning project and they're doing extra pickups for the month of April. And so, but that's a big story. And they have a new dump site for all your yard waste that they wanted to highlight and take pictures of, which really isn't all that exciting to take a picture of. But at the same time, that's really important for the community to know about. Um, you know, then you have the little things that you want to make sure that you're highlighting the, the, the gal who just retired after working for 40 years at the same job. 
you know, those little things to where you're enhancing your community and getting that community feel as well. So I mean, there's kind of that whole goal. And overall, more than anything, I actually, I presented this question talking with my, my publisher today. And he said, you know, really, as much as anything, we have all of our archives downstairs. He says, we want to be a historical record for the area. And that's really what we're trying to produce is a historical record that anyone can look back and find a certain date and time and see what was going on in the area at that time. Now, you mentioned before we started recording uh, that your family certainly knows the, the paper well, going back mm -hmm. a long ways. Uh, explain uh, what the role was that the paper played in a town like Huron. Well, there was a time when the Plainsman actually was produced multiple times in a day. And from what I understand from my grandmother, she has told me that it was produced three times per day at one time where you could get the morning, what she called the morning here a night. And it actually at the time had actually on the top of the paper, it said here a night. Uh, so you could get the morning here a night, what was called the daily here a night that came out around noon. And then the evening here a night that would come out around supper time. And so you'd get different ads or different things based on different times of the day. And it would all just be whatever, a lot of it was AP stories but it was, it's been very interesting as I worked at the paper every now and then to go through our, go down into our historical records and just kind of go through and look through some of those old papers and you'd see three and four papers from the same day. And, you know, if it was a big day and there was a big event, they might have a special paper just for that one event and then the other papers from the rest of the day, which is really kind of neat to look back on. Yeah, it's, it's an era of uh, newspapers that unfortunately has gone by with the growth oh, yeah. of certainly of the internet. Um, take me through the most interesting day that you've had this week. Well, kind of going back to that city dump, that was uh, last Thursday. I got to go out to the dump and because I had gone out earlier in the week and we just got done with basketball season here in South Dakota and I did a whole lot of picture taking for that, had not changed the settings on my camera. And went out to go take outdoor pictures at the at the dump on a Monday and had all my indoor settings on my camera and hadn't checked that and all that good stuff. So I had to go back out to the dump and take more pictures, which, you know, always a pleasant thing to go out for a second time to the dump. But our city dump also makes its own compost, which is free for city residents. Um, and it's aged for multiple years. It's really, it's actually very high grade compost. But that's part of what I was going out there to take pictures of went out there to take all kinds of different pictures of we do a big huge community garden where anyone can go out and plant a little strip of a community garden uh, and then of course this new pad it's the yard waste place is actually on a cement pad so nobody's going to get stuck dumping their yard waste anymore when it rains out so that's kind of a big deal for everyone that that's never been the what they could do and so that was part of the day well then i finished up that and i got to go back type that article up. I had a week, an editorial that ran last weekend that I went, I typed that up. I had kind of started it, but I edited that. Um, and then I had my daily thing that I do with the numbers for COVID. But then on Thursdays, I always include where the state is and locally we are with vaccine numbers each week uh, for the Friday paper. And then um, during the month of March, I did a series kind of going back through the last year with prominent members in the community on what they, you know, kind of what has gone on with COVID. And the final piece of that was talking to our school superintendent, who also happened to be the president of the state's superintendents. 
their association. And so he had tremendous amounts of information and he was definitely willing to share all of it. So I had a whole lot to edit out of what I got from him in his interview. And so that was a long thing to interview for the Saturday paper. So that was my Thursday and that, you know, I got all that done, but that was, that was just a day, you know, going through and <laughs> editing and writing all those different, you know, having your mind in all those different directions. So. How, how many people are reliant on the print version of the paper as opposed to the online version of the paper? Are people still buying the print version? We do get uh, quite a bit. I couldn't tell you honestly numbers right now. I did try to get some of that, but um, that's fine. But the, as far as percentages, I can tell you right now, our subscriptions have not gone down during uh, as during COVID. We had some some advertising stuff that has yet to fully come back, but the subscriptions have actually stayed stable. Uh, what has gone up is our online subscriptions, and we've seen that we've actually had a, a tick up of online subscriptions, which is really pleasant. And since I came on board, I really since I had experience doing social media stuff with my baseball writing and the editing that I did there, I kind of took over the social media of the, of the paper through the Facebook and Twitter feeds and then really kind of managing the online stuff. And so we really have done a lot of work on that and we get a lot of engagement from the community on Facebook, especially. How does the community respond to the different pieces that you do, um, whether they are ones that might trigger a more um, energetic reaction, I guess, than, than something about compost. You know, I am always surprised. We get, obviously, you get your folks on, on, on social media that'll have their opinions, and that's just social media. Uh, everyone's going to have strong opinions. But what I found uh, this fall you know, I, I had written plenty of strong opinion pieces. I know that my, my editor had written strong opinion pieces throughout the fall and throughout the summer. And despite all that, we get to the fall and the gal who works at our front desk, she made the comment to me. She said, you know, it's amazing to me. We just, we got through an election season and we didn't get one phone call down here complaining about our coverage of the election to one side or the other. And she says, that's a first for me since I've worked at the paper. And she's been there for a while. And so, I mean, that's, like I said, we do kind of have a balanced side uh, community where we do get, we get plenty of editorials, letters to the editor from both sides. And from anywhere from folks that are on the middle on both sides to folks that are very far on the outsides on both sides. And that's just what you get. And the, the standard practices, if folks want to, say what they want to say, we're going to let them say what they want to say, and we're going to print it as long as it's not derogatory to any one person, as long as we're not attacking anyone individually, it's probably going to get printed. If you want to make yourself look like a goof, you can look like a goof. That's kind of the, <laughs> you know, that's the deal. So including right. me when I write my stuff. So, <laughs> All right. So a couple of examples of stories you do. Uh, one, the McGee family orchid. Uh, the story of two brothers, one in Huron, one in Florida. Uh, explain that one and what went into it. So uh, Chris Gohan, the mom of the two boys in Huron, uh, she actually came to me with that because uh, Damien McGee, he's the older brother. He, uh, they, they initially, they had an open adoption of their two boys and they knew this, this older boy, um, 
and, and that his older brother and had kind of kept track of him, but ne never really, they kind of let the boys know that they had other siblings, but it was up to them if they wanted to know them, wanted to get to in touch with them. Well, as they got older, found out that the one brother was pretty darn good at football and he was going on to play division one football. Well, then suddenly, yeah, I want to go watch him play some football. So they made a trip down and watched him play some football. And then, um, he was going to come up and make a surprise visit to visit Marty, play play a football game that week. And so they thought it would make a really neat story to kind of do an interview of how these brothers connected and got to know each other and have kept in touch over the, uh, they did keep in touch over the pandemic. And then he's actually become, um, he's a motivational speaker uh, and has done some different things and really, has worked with the the boys, you know, they're being raised by two parents who are white and he has worked with them very strongly about their identity as African-American young men, especially last summer, as you were going through George Floyd and everything else in this country, he really was a very good mentor for them. And so we got into a good discussion on that. He and I had a very long phone conversation about this and then got to chat with him when he came up here. We've actually reconnected a couple of different times. He's come up to visit a few different times. Um, and I got to let him know that, that that story itself actually got nominated for uh, for an award, a statewide award. Um, and then he, he let me know that he got, uh, he was a wide receiver in college. He actually got on with the Jacksonville Arena League team. So he's actually going to be playing some football because that was what he was trying to do was catch on with a football team. And because he was a D1 double A guy, struggled to get any real uh, looks with any NFL teams. But now that he's got a chance with Arena League, he says he might be able to get that shot. So it's kind of a neat thing and a neat story to keep up with these guys with too. So Yeah, absolutely. And um, something like making the Arena League, I imagine would be, a big deal in a small town like a Huron, yeah. uh, South Dakota. All right. On another note, I read a column that you did last week about the governor of the state and the transgender legislation that has been on her desk. You made that column personal. How do you go about making big stories more personal and relatable uh, to a population, uh, as you said, that is uh, two thirds uh, conservative when it comes to voting? I've taken it how it would be relatable for me. And in, the, in that particular story, I took how, you know, hey, this was relatable for my kids. And it was relatable for a friend of mine who then came to me with that story. Um, that's one of the things that I did a thing a couple weeks after the George Floyd incident where I reached out to a couple of my friends from college and said, I need to understand what I don't know. And a couple of them just said, dude, you just don't know. And living where you're at, you're not going to know. Okay, that's fine. A couple of them spent significant time with me explaining to me their experience. And one of them had a story that completely mirrored my wife and I's story of moving into our own home. And so it became a very good story to use for a column about why is it that his story moving into his home as a young married man versus my story moving into my home as a newly married man was so different. And that's just, you know, it was, it made for a great story there. This was a mother who reached out to me, friend of mine that I've had since college, 
who reached out that had this connection with her child. And that made for a very good connection that, oh, that's something, I don't necessarily understand it. I can't tell you how to, how to believe. I can't tell you how to think on this particular issue, but let's look at the other things going on around it. And that's how I tried to relate it. And kind of going back to, like I said, with the mental health stuff, when I worked with folks with mental illness, I tried to relate directly to them and say, so how are we going to get, make that one-on-one -on -one connection so that you can realize that I'm trying to do the best thing for you, not trying to do the best thing so the doctor can push a pill on you, not trying to do the best thing so the governor can push a program so that the Democrats can push their agenda so the Republicans can push their agenda. No, I'm trying to let you understand that what this bill in particular is doing has this these underlying issues that could come out of it that maybe aren't being explored fully right now by what you're seeing elsewhere. And so that's that's where I try to come from it. And a lot of times that's the response I get is folks go, oh, you know, you made me think about that in a way I didn't, even from folks who don't agree with me on it. And that's, that's what I wanna have. I certainly get plenty of emails from folks that say, I couldn't believe, I can't believe you even touched this topic. Well, okay, I respect that. You can have that feeling. I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned you, you were at one point going into ministry and you worked in social work and now you're in journalism and you bring both, I feel like you bring both of those to this job. Does, does the work that you were doing when you were considering going into ministry uh, come into play at all as you approach interviews and writing stories? You know, it, it really does because I think for one, I mean, it's, it's, you could, obviously this is an audio format, so people can't see that I, I wear a cross around my neck anywhere I go. Um, something I've had since I was in high school. Someone gave it to me and I've had that same cross since then. I have never had, I've had plenty of folks who I've known in my life of other faiths presenting myself as I am and letting them know that I am not coming at them in an aggressive way about what they believe. I have never had someone of another faith or of no religious background have an issue with my cross. And that has opened a lot of doors when I was working in ministry that opened a lot of doors for someone to walk into my church when I was working in a church. Now it's allowed folks to open up pretty quickly with me. And so I think that's part of the deal is a lot of folks see that cross and they're like, hey, this is a guy who I can trust that he has some good things that he believes and he's not a mean evil person that works in the media. Because there's some folks who actually believe that out there that there are mean evil people that work in the media. And so when I come to them with a, you know, a recorder in hand and say, I'd like to sit down and have a chat with you, there's some flags that go up with them, but you try to immediately quell those and just sit down to have a chat. Right. you like, you don't fit the stereotype of the reporter to them. And that's, and that's what I try to immediately bring out. Yeah. All right. Um, Emmy Lederman, our podcast intern, couldn't be with us today. I'm going to ask some of the questions that she likes to ask in the advice section of the episode. Uh, is there anything about working in local news that surprised you? I would say on the social media end, folks really feel in a small community like they have direct access to you because they see you in the community and then they read your stuff in the paper. And so they will come up to you, whether it's on your 
on your own. They'll send you a message on social media. They'll send you an email at your work or personally if they have that. Or they'll walk right up to you at Walmart and they'll unfiltered tell you exactly what they thought of your last opinion column. And sometimes those unfiltered words aren't, you know, they're not words I could definitely say on this, on this podcast. So that's one thing that really surprised me. I never had any, you know, a lot of, a lot of the times you hear, don't read the comments. I, I will say in local media, I've had way worse comments than I ever had writing about baseball, which I found very surprising considered the national, national audience versus a local. Sure. So, and also, I guess you're to them, you're their, I was trying to think of who's an equivalent, you're their Chris Wallace, or you're their yeah. uh, person of significance. You're a, a local celebrity by being in the position that you're in. Um, what gaps in coverage should a recent college graduate be looking to fill? For me, one thing I, I notice that folks struggle with is doing a story on a community-based thing, whether it's taking the time and talking, like I mentioned to that gal who's been working at a, a, the same business doing the same job for 40 years and she's about to retire, finding a way to sit down with that, that person and write a 700 word story about that and make all 700 words sound like you're excited about that story. Because you can tell when you read those stories who was interested in that and who punched the clock. And the person who is the subject of that story deserves the person who's interested in doing it. And that's what really makes that good. You know, that that's an area that in small town reporting, those paper, that's a vital part of those papers is building that community aspect of it. It's I go back to my days working for a mid city uh, paper and thinking about how I wrote pieces about the local figure skating stand out or the 10 year old karate champ or the 80 year old who ran 10 K's those got letters to the editors some of those. And that's surprised. I remember that surprising me at the time, but it's true. The connection. And that unfortunately seems to be evaporating in a lot of areas because of the decline of uh, journalism across the United States. Uh, on a different note, how did writing about baseball teach you about the things that you'd be doing in this job? I think for me, I mentioned before, Writing in baseball, I would always research things from a lot of angles because in baseball, we have numbers for everything. And if you make a point and there is a number to prove you wrong, it'll be very quick to find that number and prove you wrong. So before <laughs> I went out on a ledge and tried to say, this is my point, I would make sure to look as many angles as I could find to say, I want to make sure I can find every angle that could possibly disprove me before I make that pretty strong assertion. And so that is one thing that I definitely took from that. The other end of things is one of the things that I had to do is I spent a couple weeks ago in about a four day span, I spent about 38 hours writing about basketball during state tournament time. That's just what you had to do because we had a local team that was in the state tournament. And then we also cover all of the state tournaments in general. So I was writing about state tournaments all the time you got to turn around a basketball game in a darn hurry with very minimal information sometimes throughout the, the school year. And so you'll get just a box score and you got to turn that into an actual story, which boy, baseball writing sure teaches you how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so what's fascinating to me though, is that you're writing that 
one day and then you're writing your column about the governor uh, another day. And then the next day you might be at the dump taking pictures of compost and garbage. That verse, so versatility, I imagine would be uh, one lesson that you would have for people who aspire to go into journalism, right? Yes, absolutely. And just kind of an, a natural curiosity about the world that you always want to learn about different angles of the world, that different little pieces of the world, you want to learn more about this little thing that you found out. What advice would you have to someone who took the roundabout path that you did? Like they, one minute you're a social worker, um, the next minute you're not, and then you're in this. Um, that's it. I, I looked at some of the jobs you listed on LinkedIn. It was like, whoa, that, that's, um, that's a career that's a career change that i think requires a little bit of guts to, to try and do something like that at your age our age um what advice would you have in that in that regard i think the biggest thing is if you have a passion for something listen to it because for me my passion has always been helping people but yet i love to write and i always did and when i was writing about baseball i loved doing that so when I started looking at, okay, I need to get out back on the horse and get out, find a job outside of the home, helping people and still being able to write was something I really wanted to combine. And I will tell you, if I would be writing for a paper where I was stuck on a singular type of a beat, where, you know, I'm just going to city council meetings and county commission meetings, and that's all I did, I would be so bored out of my mind. I couldn't do it. Being able to cover the city dump and sports and the city commission and the, you know, and talk about, you know, write an editorial and, you know, all these different things. That's exactly, I mean, that really energizes me. That really gives me the opportunity to, to fan that interest that I have. And that really hits my passion perfectly. So I found a niche for me that works perfect. Whereas I think if I would apply probably to the, maybe even the next paper size level up, or I would probably be out a fish out of water, you know? And so I'm probably in about the right spot for me. And that's just it. That's awesome. That's, it sounds like you're enjoying it immensely and you're only a year and a half into it. So you got, you got a long way to go to, to be, you know, career journalist. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. So last question, is there a journalism organization or person that you would like to salute? You know, locally, um, a lot of folks know DeSmit, South Dakota. It's the Laura, Ing Laura Ingalls Wilder uh, play takes place there. It's kind of the subject of a lot of her books. Uh, that's also the home for the Kingsbury Journal. And about this time or so last year, they put out a post on social media that they were forever shutting their doors. Uh, the owner for years had been trying to sell the paper, had found no buyers, and finally hit a point where with COVID, he just didn't have enough revenue at all coming in and he had to shut the doors. The community got together and the community essentially purchased the paper from him. They have one paid editor and it's a weekly paper. Everyone who provides stories does so on a volunteer basis and she puts the paper together once a week. And to me, that is awesome small town journalism. And it's one of those things that really should be highlighted and, and celebrated that that type of stuff still keeps going 
in, in our communities. I love this. This is, um, we have had an interesting variety of topics uh, on this podcast in the course of the last six to eight weeks or so. We kind of spin back to small town journalism and uh, Ben Chase, this was awesome. Um, thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for having me. On the subject of small town and local journalism, one of my regular listeners, John Miller, wrote an article published on the Pointer Institute's website this week. It told the story of the aptly named Buzz Story, who covered Uniontown, Pennsylvania for 61 years and used that story to show the impact that a journalist could have on their community. John then related it to now, a time when nearly 25% of local newspapers have gone out of business in the last 15 years, and it's left to groups like Block Club Chicago, The Devil Strip, and MLK 50 to pick up where those newspapers left off in connecting to their communities. We salute the Huron Statesman and Ben Chase for the work they're doing and hope for their continued success in the future. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at journalismpod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.